I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Presenza, a biotechnology company developing a breakthrough therapy for the rare fatal genetic disease Duchenne muscular dystrophy, suffered a big setback when disappointing late-stage trial results of its lead therapeutic led its partner, GlaxoSmithKline, to return rights to the experimental drug in January 2014. Presenza's stock plummeted, and the future of the company was uncertain. Cure Duchenne, which had provided early funding for the company, stepped in once again. This time, it made a $7 million commitment to restore the clinical programs and move the company forward. We spoke to Deborah Miller, president and CEO of Cure Duchenne, about her experience with Presenza. The recent news, Biomarin would acquire the company for up to $840 million, and the role venture philanthropists like her can play in accelerating the development of life-saving drugs. Deborah, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about your experience with the drug developer Presenza, the acquisition of the company by Biomarin, and, and the role rare disease patients and their families can play in accelerating research and drug development. I think, though, it, it might be useful to start with Duchenne itself. What is it, how and when is it diagnosed and treated, and, and what's the prognosis for patients diagnosed with the disease? So Duchenne is a progressive muscle disease. It's usually diagnosed in children anywhere from, you know, one to, to five years old when the parents and physicians notice that they have trouble getting up off the floor and they can't keep up with their peers. It's caused by a defect on the dystrophin gene, which is the biggest gene in the body. And there's um, lots of different places where there can be a mutation um, on the gene, and it can be a duplication, a deletion, or, you know, different types of mutations that occur on the gene. And normally, the boys um, start off looking pretty normal, as, as our son did, and then you start noticing things, and um, unfortunately, a lot of it, it goes undiagnosed right away. Eventually, by the time the boys are anywhere between 8 and 12 years old, they're confined to a wheelchair, and then they start losing the use of their upper body um, and their arms, and eventually they are pretty much paralyzed, and um, they usually succumb to either pulmonary or cardiac failure um, anywhere from their their teens up through, you know, 25 years old. There are a few individuals that do um, live much longer, but um, they're you know, pretty, pretty severely affected. Well, you and I spoke several years ago about your own experience. If I remember correctly, your, your involvement came when your son was diagnosed with the disease at, at around age five. You wanted to get involved in, in fighting it, but you were a little frustrated about the choices available at the time. What led to the decision to create your own organization? So we, we were very frustrated. I mean, first we were frustrated that we couldn't get 
the correct diagnosis, even when we pretty much open the book and ask our pediatrician to look at the symptoms. Um, and, and by the way, um, for those who are listening, Duchenne is a really easy disease to diagnose. Um, for the most part, if you see a little boy that has enlarged calf muscles and they, you know, have trouble getting them off the floor, or they just seem to be a little bit delayed in their gross motor, it's, it's something to look into. And I always try and let people know that because it's such an easy diagnosis um, from, from just being able to observe the kids. Um, so we we were obviously very frustrated that it took so long to get a, a proper diagnosis. And then we were um, really, first of all, surprised that we never heard the word Duchenne because we did learn that it's the largest of the orphan diseases and it affects one in 3,500 boys worldwide. And so we were quite surprised that we hadn't heard about this disease. And so, you know, we really never intended to start a nonprofit ourselves and we wanted to help other people raise money. Both my husband and I came from sales and marketing backgrounds, and so we knew how to raise money and, and create a message. And um, we just really couldn't find an organization that was focused on research and that was really focused on finding a cure. There were other organizations that were dealing with parent, parent support and camps and things like that. Um, but we, you know, we wanted a cure for our kid. We, we wanted to be out of business because there was a cure found. Um, and so we weren't really interested in, in developing, you know, a, a big organization. So we finally realized that if we wanted to affect change quickly, we were going to have to start our own organization, and that's when we founded Cure to Shin. So how did you become involved with Procenza? So that was, it's a, it's a great story. Um, we had just opened the doors of the foundation. I think we had like $10,000 in the bank. <laughs> and I received a, a call from um, a gentleman in the Netherlands, and it was actually a voicemail and very heavy accent and didn't leave his area code. And it took me a while to track down, you know, where he was actually calling from. And it turns out it was um, the CEO of Presenza. And they had a um, a compound that, is involved in exon skipping, which is a pretty cool technology that um, a drug is targeted to a specific mutation on the gene, and it kind of skips over the mutated part and, if you will, Velcros the good ends back together and will hopefully produce um, a shorter dystrophin protein that should be functional in restoring um, you know, the reading frame and restor- restoring the protein that's so necessary for, for muscle stability. So we talked, and um, we had already put together a very impressive uh, scientific advisory board at that point. And so, you know, we talked to all of our advisors, and, you know, everybody chimed in and, you know, explained the, the risks and the rewards and the good and the bad and everything else. But really the, the final question that I asked them was, because you know, they all had kids, is if this was your child, you know, what what's the first project that you would support? And without exception, they all came back and said that they would support ProSense's exon skipping drug. And so for us, that gave us, you know, a, a good feeling. And um, we basically committed to a $1.3 million contract with them with our $10,000 in the bank. Um, and, and we knew it was going to be tough to raise the money, but we knew that we had to do it. And, and we did. In January 2014, Persensus partner GlaxoSmithKline returned the company's lead drug, Drysaperson, to it. Drysaperson is, as you mentioned, wor- works by inducing exon skipping, essentially causing the, the body to ignore the, the defective 
dystrophin protein that causes Duchenne. The decision by GSK followed a, a late-stage clinical trial in which the drug didn't show it was any better at improving walking distance in patients than a placebo. Where did it leave the drug and the company at that point? We, we, we call it Black Friday around here. <laughs> it, was, it was devastating. Um, it took, I think, all of us by surprise, uh, scientists and parents, and, and especially the parents who had their, their kids on the drug during the trial. Um, you know, everybody was, was completely surprised by this. And at that point, we, um, you know, GSK pulled the drug from all the patients that were in the Pearson trial, as well as um, all the kids that were in the Pro 44, Pro 45, and Pro 53 trials, because Presenza has um, three other active clinical development programs going for different exon skipping drugs. And so that was that was even, you know. Um, doubly bad. And so we, we actually tried to get GSK to continue dosing the kids that had been in the trial and, and, and they would not. So um, during that time, you know, we had talked to so many parents who really had wonderful stories about the effectiveness of the drug. And, you know, it, it left us again scratching our heads that how come we're not seeing this in the data. And when GSK um, returned the assets to um, Presenza in, in January of this year. They took on a very um, massive job of looking at the data and doing a meta-analysis with the help of GSK to understand basically, you know, what happened. And the conclusion was is that there was a great variability in the clinical trial sites. Um, you know, the European and, and U.S. sites were pretty um, similar, and once they started going into some of the third world countries, a, a lot of variabilities seemed to arise. And so by looking at that, they feel confident that they, um, when they look at the subsets, are able to really identify groups of boys that did benefit. And these were boys that were a little bit younger and had been on the drug longer because it takes time to build up in the muscles. And so the FDA did... Um, you know, invite them or allow them to file an NDA, uh, which they started in October of this year. Here, Duchenne in August entered into an agreement that provided up to $7 million in funding to percents in convertible notes to advance their pipeline of drugs, including Drysaperson. You, you, you've acted, I, I take it, as, as both a grant funder and investor. Is that correct? Yes. So, Cure uh, Duchenne is a very big proponent of venture philanthropy. We really believe that um, a disease like Duchenne, um, as a rare disease, there's not enough money in the Duchenne community to cure itself, basically. And the only way that we're really going to um, be able to fund all the, the really good research that's out there is to reach outside the, the Duchenne community. Well, when, when, when you made this investment, what was the thinking here? Well, the, the initial investment, we, we actually did take an equity stake in, in the company. And so when they had their IPO in 2013, we actually um, received equity shares in the company, which we've been able to sell and, and we have as um, a funding account, the um, which will be used and has been used for, for further research with different um, projects. The recent uh, contract that we signed with them in August, the thinking there is that um, it's it's there was work we wanted them to do. We wanted them to start redosing patients for just a Pearson that had been on the trial. And we wanted them to start um, the European and U.S. trials for Pro 44 and, and, and start the programs for the other um, Exxon compounds also. And at the point in January when we started talking to them about this, they were so focused on getting their lead drug 
approved um, because they just were a small company. They didn't have the resources to um, work on all these different projects in parallel. And from a business standpoint, I totally get that. I mean, their board of directors and management was focused on getting their first drug approved so that they would have the resources to then in parallel develop these other drugs. But from a mom's perspective, um, you know, and, and the other parents that we're working with, we couldn't wait. And a, a year or a two-year delay for a company isn't a, a major thing as they're, you know, staying focused on, on their lead drug. But from a parent standpoint, it's, it's a lifetime in, in Duchenne years, literally. And so we, um, we worked out an arrangement with them where we would enable them to continue working on these other compounds in parallel. And we basically made up the gap that GSK left in the short term to develop these other compounds. As a venture philanthropist, how do you evaluate investment and risk when, when, when you look at the trial problems that Persenza had and, and the loss of, of a big pharma partner? What types of questions do you want answered before making a decision to, to fund a company or a project? That's a good question. We asked a lot of questions. Um, obviously, you know, we we were not privy to any data that the public did not see. Um, you know, they're a public company, and so they're obviously very careful about that. I based the prime the, the biggest decision I made was based upon the parents that I talked to and understanding the benefit that the kids had received. And for me, that was, um, you know, I, I think I was very careful and trying to weed out the the situations where I felt there might be a placebo effect and really focus on the families that had seen a sustained benefit with their kids over the, the, the years that they were on the drug and and the decline that they saw once the kids came off the drug. Persenja is not the only company you've provided funding to. Other companies include Sarepta and, and PTC Therapeutics. What have you learned about working with these companies? How can an organization like Cure Duchenne have the biggest impact? I think we can have the biggest impact when we come in early. Um, Curedition has been very innovative in terms of um, really doing, vetting companies at an early stage and doing um, pretty significant due diligence at an early stage. And obviously with Persenza, we were there close to it, the inception of the company. With Sarepta, we were there quite early. At a point um, in 2010, they were on clinical hold um, in the U.S., and we worked with um, Eric Hoffman at Children's National Medical Center um, Foundation to eradicate Duchenne. And we um, put our resources, our, our funding together and gave it to, um, it was then ABI, to enable them to do the toxicology and regulatory work to get off clinical hold and, you know, be able to go into clinical trials, which we're very, very excited that they've come as far as they have now. They've initiated, you know, the confirmatory uh, phase three trial. Um, they've started another trial for a different Exxon, Exxon 53 in Europe. And so um, it just kind of shows that I think we're a patient group that does their due diligence like Curedition can impact at a point where they don't have a lot of access to public or venture funds. Biomarina, a company focused on rare genetic disease, announced it would acquire Persenza. I assume that re- reflects faith in the ability of a person to get approved by the FDA. I-, I know you haven't met with management yet, but any sense how this will affect development plans for Persenza's drug and, and the rest of its pipeline? So what I'm going to say is, is pure conjecture because I have not met with them yet. Um, so, you know, I'm first of all thrilled to see this um, this participation of BioMarin. 
Um, it's a great company, and they have a tremendous track record of um, not only working in the orphan space, but actually getting drugs approved, and some of them have been difficult um, cases. Um, they actually have gotten um, a drug approved that had failed the phase three before, and they've gotten a drug approved that um, had a 21-meter um, improvement in a six-minute walk versus the 30 or 35 that, um, you know, Duchenne has normally been held to. And I have to say that, um, you know, GSK, it wasn't a, a zero increase in walking over the placebo. It it was actually a 10-meter improvement versus what they wanted to see was a 30-meter. So um, I just wanted to clarify that. So I feel that of any company, BioMarin stands in the best position to be able to um, present the data in such a way that the FDA will be convinced that, that there is a real drug here and that it really does work. Well, what does the deal mean to cure Duchenne? Do you, do you have the right to accelerate investment and convert? Does it create a win here that you could use to fund other research? You know, we we don't know yet. Um, we, Like I said, we haven't spoken with them, and we're trying to, um, you know, allow them to um, deal with the, the big issues that they're dealing with right now in terms of going through with the transaction. But we will be meeting with them in the next few weeks and hopefully have uh, clarity on that. Well, what do you think the Prosenza story says about venture philanthropy and, and the role organizations like Cure Duchenne can play? I think that venture philanthropy is really, really important. In fact, I almost feel that um, patient organizations that are raising money from their constituents, from families and parents, you know, should be expecting a return if they're going to put those funds into a for-profit company. Um, you know, parents that do walks and runs and, you know, bake sales and they work so hard to raise that money, um, I think that they would prefer to see um, the return if, if there is one come back into the organization so that they could fuel and fund more more research instead of just, you know, the whole profit going to the biotech companies. Now, you know, the biotech companies obviously would love, um, you know, free money, um, but I think that more and more they're understanding that um, some of the patient organizations expect to be partnering in this with them. Deborah Miller, President and CEO of Cure Duchenne. Deborah, thanks so much for your time today. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.